Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. G'day, hope you're terrific. We have a really good mix today to bring you over the next half an hour, including Phil Jarrett, who's uh, written a book called Australia's Hottest Surfing Legends. And part of the book uh, involves him telling us what it is to enjoy that moment, that key moment when you're surfing. Uh, and even at my advanced age, I, I, get, I get up every morning and the first thing I do is, uh, is uh, check the surf. And if, this, if, there's, if there's a wave to be had, I'll go and surf it. All part of the joy. We'll also hear from former Australian captain Greg Chappell, who's uh, written a book called Fierce Focus. He talks of many things, including his attitude towards Kim Hughes. And I've obviously tried to be as careful as I could in, in the book because I certainly don't want to denigrate somebody who represented and, and captained his country and he represented the country with great distinction. I can think of probably three innings uh, off the top of my head that are three of the best innings that uh, probably have ever been played in in Test cricket and they were they were by Kim Hughes. Also, it is the part of the season that we look forward to the most. It is footy finals time. Began the first year of the of the VFL, which was eighteen ninety seven, and they they did it in a funny way, Barry. They they didn't play a grand final. They uh, they played a series of round robin matches. Like the top six teams all played each other, um, which meant there were three matches, and. Uh, or each side had three matches, and whoever won the most matches won the premiership. So a look at the history of AFL finals. So all of that coming up in the next half hour. Do hope you can stay with us. New from ABC Books, Sweet by local radio Sally Wise. Sally has collected many mouth-watering recipes over the years, and now she shares them with you. There are delicious treats, old-fashioned custards and puddings, tarts and slices, cookies, biscuits and cakes, fruit pies and even confectionery. Sweet, 260 little slices of heaven. Available now for immediate delivery from ABC Shop Online and from ABC Shops, Centres and Good Bookshops. Well, trying to pin down the origin of sport can be a tricky thing, but that's uh, one of the topics that's raised in Phil Jarrett's book. It's called Australia's Hottest Surfing Legends. And I spoke with Phil a bit earlier, and I asked him about just when the sport of surfing began. Well, it's actually quite interesting because um, I'm always surprised at how many people of around my age, you know, the baby boomers, um, tend to believe that uh, that surfing began when, when, when they started, you know, whether it was the late 50s or the early 60s. Um, in fact... That was that was when the the modern modern Malibu surfboard era began. But there was a, at least a, a half a century of surfing history in Australia be, before that. The first surfboards were ridden in in the very early years of the century, um, around about 1906 through to 1910. And then, of course, in in 1914-15, in that uh, the, the first summer of the First World War, um, a guy called Duke Kahanamoku, who was the the uh, Olympic swimming champion for the uh, the hundred meters. Um, came to Australia to give swimming exhibitions, and he was also the uh, the world's best known surfboard rider, uh, Waikiki Beach Boy. And um, he did several surfing exhibitions while he was uh, in the Sydney area, then then later in Queensland, and also in Victoria. And um, he really popularised a sport that had been around just a handful of years, and it really took off from there. So, what year are we talking there? Uh, that was the summer of 1914, 15. Okay, so I mean, you say he popularised it. Yet, you know, the impression that most would have would would be that 50s, 60s was the time when it became more mainstream. Is that that's not right? 
Well, it, it's an interesting, interesting story actually, because uh, you know, after after Duke's visit, um, the surfing population of Australia probably uh, increased tenfold from about a dozen people to about a hundred, hundred, hundred and twenty. You know, there's, right, there's yeah. still there still were not a lot of surfers around, but uh, they did become more noticeable, particularly on uh, on Sydney's more popular beaches like um, like Bondi and Manly. Um, but then what happened was with the with the rise of the, the surf lifesaving movement um, after the First World War, uh, surfboard riding was kind of seen to be uh, a little bit uh, uh, a little bit you know too hedonistic. Um, it wasn't really helping other people, uh, so it was subsumed somewhat by the uh, by the Surf Lifesaving Association. Uh, it became um, the surfboard became uh, a rescue vehicle, if you like, and uh, instead of uh, surfboard performance, uh, what was important was paddling speed. And uh, so the, the Surf Lifesaving Association instigated paddling races. So then it became all about paddling uh, very very long hollow hollow uh, what were called toothpick surfboards, um, and they got up to around. 17, 18 feet long, um, and they weren't ideal for performance surfboard riding, but they were very fast to paddle. So then it wasn't until after the Second World War that things really started to, to hot up with the introduction of the, the Malibu surfboard from California. Look, if you're just with us, I'm speaking with Phil Jarrett, who is the he's a surfer, a surfing writer, but he's written a book called Australia's Hottest 100 Surfing Legends. Um, when you look at a surfer, Phil, and, and you, you, you know, if you're defining a hundred legends, you must have some criteria. How do you judge a great surfer? Well, I mean, in in compiling this uh, this list, um, which could be uh, you know vastly different if uh, if I wrote it today rather than having written it six months ago, um, I I was looking uh, not just at competitive results. I was looking at um, uh, people who have made uh, made a difference or you know exerted uh, an influence um, on the sport and culture over a long period of time. Um, so in in the book, there are people who never never surfed a, a contest in their lives. Um, in fact, there's one person in it, uh, Freddie Williams, who never rode a surfboard in his life. But um, in the very early years of the century, he really created the surfing lifestyle. He gave up he gave up work. He gave up um, living in a civilized house. Lived in a humpy on the beach and body surfed every every day. Uh, for the rest of his life, you know, he discovered the lure of the surf. So that's that's uh, that's why he's in it. I mean, I've got some filmmakers um, whose uh, whose image making really really transformed uh, the way we the way we thought of uh, of the sport of surfing. I've put them in the book as well. So it's not just purely uh, about your competitive prowess. There's a guy called Mark Matthews in it who's uh, who's not well known as a contest surfer. Uh, but uh, he's the Australian who's probably riding bigger waves than, than any other Australian has ever even thought about doing, and uh, he's become a, a professional big wave hunter. It's interesting. Surfing is a, a, a sport which seems to have a growing literature. I, I know that it's probably always had uh, writing about it, but there seem to be more and more, and there's some good, really good quality uh, writing about surfing. What is it about the sport? Is it... Uh, it must be the backdrop of the culture to it that uh, enables the telling of individual stories through it, not just about skill, but much more. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been—I'm a lifelong surfer. I've been surfing more than fifty years, um, and I've been a writer for uh, you know forty years or something. Um, uh, I've written nearly thirty books, and and uh, not all of them have been about surfing, but the, the last four or five uh, on the trot have all been about surfing. And uh, I've got a couple more to come. So, I, um, for me, but do you read? Uh, do, do you sense that, or do you see that there's uh, some really good surf riding out there? Uh, 
Um, I do, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think there's probably about three or four people who have become dangerously prolific <laughs> other, <laughs> yeah. other than myself. Yeah. Um, guys like Tim Baker, for example, oh. um, who's, uh, who's a friend of mine and a, a, a also a, a former uh, a former tracks editor, as I am. Um, and uh, he, he's become very prolific in recent years. He's got a, a new book out called Safari, which I haven't read yet, but looks looks really interesting. Um, there, are, there are quite a few. Uh, Sean Doherty's another one. Yeah. Um, but what is it about surfing that lends itself? To, to writing about it in, well, in a way that the every person could read and understand and enjoy? Well, I think it's... Um, uh, people have been saying this for a, for a long, long time, but I, I, I think it is, it is true that surfing is just far more than a, than a sport. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a culture. Uh, in some respects, it's an art form. Um, and and once, once you've got the bug, it's with you for life, you know, um, uh, I mentioned before that uh, in in bygone eras, people used to give used, used to give up surfing um, at a much earlier age. But uh, but the spirit of 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 the sport and of the lifestyle stayed with them. Um, now that we can we can surf for for much much longer into our lives, um, I think uh, it it once you take up the sport, it it, it it's sort of with you for life, and uh, I find um, that that probably ninety percent of my friends are in some way, um, and, and that's friends all all over the world, uh, are in some way associated with beach culture or the surf, um, and they have, of course, they have uh, a lot of other things going for them in their lives. But we we just share this common bond of uh, we're lifelong surfers. What is it? What do you get from surfing? Look, I'm 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 pretty much your uh, your, your your common or garden recreational surfer. Uh, and even at my advanced age, I, I, get, I get up every morning, and the first thing I do is uh, is uh, check the surf, and if this, if there's if there's a wave to be had, I'll go and surf it. Now, some days it'll be a pretty ordinary wave, uh, but it doesn't really matter to me because uh, that just getting in the water, just loosening up, and and riding a few waves, and having feeling that uh, incredible freedom uh, that being alone on your surfboard it doesn't matter if there's a there's a crowd in the water, but you can you're alone on your surfboard, uh, you're dictating the moves, um, and you just it, it's just a wonderful way to start the day. Is it the sort of sport, just to finish off with here, Phil, that should be an Olympic sport? Or does it, in a sense, is it quite distinct from that? I, I mean, I'm a bit ambivalent about that. The The Olympic, uh, the Olympic movement uh, in, within surfing has been, has been uh, around since uh, the first World, World Surfing Championships were held at uh, Manly Beach in Sydney in, back in 1964. At the end, it was a very successful event. Uh, 60,000 people came along to the beach to watch. And at the end of it, they said, well, uh, this is uh, the first step in, in uh, turning surfing into an Olympic sport. And of course, uh, nearly 50 years later, it is not an Olympic sport. Um, there are there are a lot of protagonists in in surfing organisations uh, who would love to see it become so, uh, and I understand what they're thinking. But uh, to my way of thinking, um, it's uh, it's probably better that it doesn't. Um, I think it's uh, it's one of one. You know, I mean, it's a it's a standalone sport that uh, that 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 includes such a, a vast array of characters uh, from all kinds of walks of life um, that I, I, would, I wouldn't like to see it regimented to the degree that a, a, an Olympic sport has to be, really. You know, training camps everywhere. I mean, of course, we have training camps in, in surfing, but um, I, think, uh, I think we've probably gone far enough down, down that track. Um, as we said earlier, it's not just a sport. It's a culture and a lifestyle as well. Yeah, that's, a, so I, that's the answer I thought you'd give. It's, it's interesting. Phil Jarrett, good to speak. Thanks a lot for being able to. Thanks, Barry. 
Phil Jarrett, uh, author of Australia's Hottest 100 Surfing Legends. Have your say. Post a comment on Facebook or Twitter at ABC 110%. And now it's time to flick through the sports book. Greg Chappell is seen as one of Australia's best batsmen since the Second World War. Uh, he's also a man who's been involved in coaching in sometimes rather controversial circumstances with India. He's written about his career and his coaching experiences in a book called Fierce Focus. And I spoke with Greg and I asked him just what he made of the commercialisation of the game, uh, given that he was very much part of that crucial change in the 1970s with World Series cricket. Well, I think it's certainly more of a, of a business and, and it's part of the entertainment business. So I suppose that's, um, that's true. Um, you know, I, I watch cricketers as I, I have um, for the best part of... 50 years, but particularly in the last 15 years uh, as a coach, both here in Australia and overseas, that you know, I, I see players who are spending a lot of time practicing for for the game, but they're not necessarily getting better. I think one of the advantages, I suppose, of when the when the sport was a pastime was that you got relatively speaking so little time to to practice it that it was. It was very intense, and it had a match intensity about it. And and comparing the two, I've suggested in the book that you know I, I think that um, we could learn something from that. That you know we would be better off having less sessions, training sessions, but make them more at a match intensity um, is more likely to allow players to develop to their full potential than doing long low intense sessions that don't necessarily help you get better. Greg, uh, you've mentioned or you've written in, in the book about your early days, your, your contest with Ian in the backyard, uh, the influence of Lynn Fuller uh, and then also Chester Bennett when you went to PAC. But I'd like to move us forward to um, the time when Australian cricket was sort of uh, re-announcing itself on the world stage. We're talking 72 here, your brother Ian captaining Australia away for the first time. I mean, at what point did you, as a player, think we've got something here? We've got a, a team that is going to become the best in the world. Well, I think that '72 tour of England was uh, was an amazing experience. I'd played two seasons of county cricket for Somerset um, at the end of the '60s, and um, yeah, that that had been a great experience for me. And it did stand me in good stead for going back and playing uh, cricket in England at the international level. I mean, I'd grown up in the the backyard in Adelaide dreaming of, of playing test cricket. But to actually walk out at Lords for the first time wearing the baggy green cap was, was an amazing experience. Um, again, I had been there a couple of times with Somerset, but walking out there as an Australian player, just practising at Lords as an Australian player was a, was a very different experience and I think there are probably two cricket grounds in the world that I you know I have very fond memories of Sydney Cricket Ground and Lords because it didn't matter whether there was nobody at the ground there was an atmosphere that very few other cricket grounds had and that Lords test match in that tour was a turning point we'd lost the the first test match um the Lords test match uh, is remembered as Bob Tass uh, Massey's um debut he took 16 wickets on debut eight in each innings you scored 131, of course, as well. Yeah, well, that uh, I look back on that as one of my better innings because it really was a game that was dominated by the ball. And, um, you know, Bob bowled magnificently, as did Dennis Lilly. And, uh, you know, we, we won that 
uh, test match. And I think it was the first time we started to think that we really did have something uh, that um, could, you know, could challenge, first of all, the Englishman. Um, we drew the third test match. We, we lost the fourth test match at Leeds, and then we went to the Oval in the fifth test match. And I remember Ian standing up before that test match and saying to us, you know, that uh, if we go home to all, it will be looked upon as a successful series. But if we go home losing 3-1, it, it will be considered to have been a poor series and could affect the careers of many of us. So um, it had an impact. It was a, an amazing test match. We played for six days because the, the tour conditions in those days with the series still being alive allowed for a, a sixth day and, and the game finished around lunchtime on the sixth day and it, it ebbed and flowed throughout the test match and we finished up coming out on top and I think that was the time you know Dennis Lee had announced himself um, shortly after that Jeff Thompson joined him and from that point onwards you know we had a, a very successful period success against New Zealand Pakistan the West Indies away in 73 England arrived in 74-5 uh, it appeared that it might be an even series no boycott no snow but Thompson and Lilly, uh, Australia, as we know, defeated England very heavily. The next year, or the next season, 75-6 against the West Indies, Australia won, I think it was 5-1 as well. What was the effect on the West Indies of that series? There's been much written and spoken about uh, the West Indies, particularly this year with the release of the documentary, um, I think it's Cricketing Babylon. But uh, from, from your perspective, how did you see that series affecting the West Indies? Oh, I think it had a profound effect on Clive Lloyd, their their captain. Uh, I, I think they came here thinking that they were a chance of, of beating us. They had a couple of young fast bowlers, not least of all Michael Holding themselves. Uh, Viv Richards came for the first time on, on that tour and uh, announced himself in the, the final test of that series and then went to England and really burst onto the international stage. There was very little between the two sides, but... We had Thompson and Lilly. Uh, you know, we had a pretty experienced batting lineup. We were probably at the peak of our powers, and they were just building towards their powers. Um, I remember talking to Rudy Webster, who um, was involved with the West Indian team uh, at that stage. Um, he uh, he lived in Australia for a while. Um, worked. He was a doctor, a lovely fellow, and he talked about. Uh, a meeting or a, uh, a session he had with Clive Lloyd at the end of that tour where they sat down over a, a few drinks and uh, Clive spelled out um, his plan for, you know, for uh, turning the tables on Australia and taking the West Indies to the top. He was going to develop the best pace attack, uh, an attacking batting lineup, and the best fielding team that had ever played, and I think he got pretty close to it. Yeah, I think so. Just... Just finally, Greg Chappell, uh, your assessment of Kim Hughes, that was a guy that you had a lot to do with, played a lot of cricket with, and there was that period of time when you were pretty well um, handing the captaincy, or you, when you are unavailable, Kim Hughes had to pick it up, and there was that feeling uh, amongst senior players. He wasn't perhaps the guy for the top job. Uh, once you retired, it, maybe it should have been someone like Rod Marsh. What's your assessment of Kim and his career? Well, firstly, I'm a good friend of Kim's, um, and I've obviously tried to be as careful as I could in, in the book because I certainly don't want to denigrate somebody who represented and, and captained his country, and he represented the country with great distinction. I can think of probably three innings uh, off the top of my head that are three of the best innings that uh, probably have ever been played in, in Test cricket, and they were, they were by Kim Hughes. 
I think um, you know Kim was sort of um, uh, the chosen one, if you like, after World Series cricket. There was a feeling that um, you know he was uh, the the golden boy and was going to be the next Australian captain. Um, I don't think he was ready for it when the when the time came, and I, I think it probably you know affected the possibility that he might ever be be ready for it. I think Rod was certainly the right one to to take over the captaincy. Um, when I finished, and I think if Rod had been given the captaincy, he probably would have played on for a few more years. Um, the the effect of um, you know the disappointments of the captaincy, I think, had a huge impact on on Kim as a person. It certainly affected his cricket. Um, we left him out of. I was a selector at the time. We left him out of uh, the the tour of England, and uh, when Alan Border was uh, took over the captaincy, we felt that Kim needed a break and. Uh, were hopeful that you know, if he had a break, he would come back as the player and a very experienced player over 3,000 test runs and be a great addition to that side. But we felt that if he went to England in the state of mind that he was in after he'd stepped down from the captaincy, that uh, it, it could well have destroyed him. What, for whatever reason, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the reasons. I've never really sat down with Kim and, and talked to him about it. But he decided to go to South Africa on the uh, the Rebel tours and. Um, I think he struggled because he he really was uh, struggling mentally at, at that stage emotionally after the setback of uh, of the captaincy. So I think it had a huge impact on him. And uh, you know we lost a, a cricketer who could have played for many more years and could have finished up with a, a career record much better than uh, the one that he finished with. Uh, Greg Chapel, uh, terrific to talk. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Barry. Uh, nice to talk to you. One hundred and ten percent. Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Well, it is the time of the year we look forward to the most. Uh, I'm talking about finals, and uh, my next guest is well and truly involved in that. Graham Atkinson has uh, co-authored a book called The Complete Book of AFL Finals. Graham, can you tell us uh, how it all began in the AFL slash VFL? began the first year of the, of the VFL, which was 1897, and they, they did it in a funny way, Barry. They, they didn't play a grand final. They, uh, they played a series of round-robin matches. Like the top six teams all played each other, um, which meant there were three matches. And, uh, or each side had three matches. And whoever won the most matches won the premiership. And it had the, uh, had the result that uh, Essendon in the last game beat Melbourne, and the score was 1-8 to 8 points, would you believe? And... Um, because they'd won all three matches, they were declared the premiership team. Bit of an anti-climax. When did it move on to the more cutthroat? Well, it was the next year. In fact, the, the, the VFL actually reverted to that same stupid system one, one, one more time in 1924, and believe it or not, Essendon won it again. <laughs> um, but they reverted to a grand final again in, in, uh, for the first time, rather, in 1898. And uh, except for that 1924 season, there's basically been a grand final or a deciding game um, every year since then. Why in 24 do they go back to the, the old system? God only knows, Barry. <laughs> because it was a failure the first time and it was an even bigger farce the second time because um, what actually happened was that uh, Essendon won the first two games and in the event it, it, it didn't matter whether they lost the last one or not. And um, as, as it turned out, they did. And uh, But they'd already won the premiership anyway. And uh, but it was a funny old season that one because at the end of that season, Essendon, the VFL premiers, played 
Footscray, who are the VFA premiers, in a, in a charity match for uh, the Dame Nelly Melba Fund. And uh, Footscray actually beat them. And there were all kinds of allegations about uh, players taking bribes and dives. And oh, right. The, the Essendon players punched each other up in the rooms after the game. It was quite... Uh, yeah, quite a scandal. <laughs> Where does this love of finals for you come from? Uh, Barry, I, I started, I'm now 64, and I started, uh, as a kid, I used to go to the uh, go to the football, stand up on the hill in the rain, uh, and in the football record of those days, they used to have uh, a column called Finals of Yesteryear, or, or something like that. It was by a famous reporter over here named Hugh, Hugh Buggy. Oh, yeah. Um, who was also a crime reporter, very famous man. And I he was a cricket reporter too, wasn't he? Didn't he? He was. He was. He, he was wrote about bodyline, didn't he? He was the man who invented bodyline. Yeah, who invented the term bodyline. Yeah, that's exactly right. Very, very famous man. And um, he uh, he used to have this column in the in the uh, football record. And I'd cut it out and paste it into a little scrapbook. I used to keep all of these weird football scrapbooks. Um, <laughs> when, when you're a nut like I am, or this sort of thing, you, you, you tend to do that. Yeah. And um, and I decided to fill in the gaps. I literally did decide to fill in the gaps. So I um, I spent uh, plenty of lunch times. I worked in the city, luckily. And I spent plenty of lunch times in at the state library, going through the old newspapers and filling in these uh, filling in the gaps on the finals that I, I didn't know about or I hadn't had any information on. And it took me about five years. And uh, when I'd done it, now we're talking back in the 1970s then, and, and there was a lot of problems with it because the, the VFL just didn't have those records, um, believe it or not. Um, the VFL had... Uh, That's thrown, staggering, isn't it? They'd thrown out a lot of their records. Um, yeah, it, it, it is staggering. They'd, they'd actually moved house a couple of times, the VFL, and in, along the way they'd, uh, they'd thrown out some incredible stuff, including the minute books for the uh, formation of the VFL. <laughs> Mm. Which uh, which now uh, in the gallery of sport at the MCG, but the VFL actually threw them out. Um, so anyway, I got all that stuff. From, uh, it took about five years, put it together, and thought, oh, well, maybe somebody else would like to read this. And um, so I, I did the old walk with the manuscript under the arm and um, literally door knocked. Um, but I was young and stupid in those days, and and uh, you know was able to take. <laughs> Was able to take a knock back and, and, and come back for more. So first published in 1973. Speaking with uh, Graham uh, Atkinson, who's the co-author of the complete book of AFL finals, the history and the stats for all the finals since 1897. He's co-authored it with his son, uh, Brandt. Uh, it's amazing just looking through some of the crowds that occurred and, and when there was this uh, quantum shift in the numbers of people attending uh, VFL Grand Finals, uh, it seems to be sort of around about the time of the Melbourne Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the um, uh, the uh, capacity of the MCG was expanded at that time. But by the same token, back in the in the 30s, they had enormous crowds at the MCG where literally they, uh, you know, they sat inside the boundary. Um they sat inside the boundary in the 1937 grand final, and there's a picture in the book, I think, of the uh, of the crowd, you know, six and seven deep, sitting in the forward pocket, literally sitting in the forward pocket on the ground while the game goes on. Um, well, they had almost 90,000, 90, 80, 88,000 for right. that uh, grand yeah, final. And that, was, that was basically over the capacity of the ground. Oh. 
Um, what about the 70s? Because 1970 and I think 69 had just enormous crowds. What was it I, about the game or the finals or the yeah, teams that attracted no such crowds? It was actually both of those games and 121,000 at uh, the 1970 game, um, which is still the record. How they fitted 100... Because the capacity of the MCG was nowhere near 121,000, um, or not as far as I can remember. So how they got them in there, I don't know. But obviously the, the rivalry too, the Carlton-Collingwood rivalry, had something to do with it. But they and, had 119,000 the year before. Yeah, in yeah. In 69. Yeah. And, uh, and the rivalry there, again, was a, a big one, you know, Richmond-Carlton. Um, but why they peaked in those years, Barry, I, I just... I, I, don't have an adequate explanation. I just don't know. It just happened. One it of those just happened, phenomenons. yeah. They, they were obviously, uh, you know, bitter rivals, very, very bitter rivals. I think 1970, probably Collingwood had been waiting a while for a premiership, and I think 1970 they saw that this was going to be the one. Um, so maybe that packed in a few extra Collingwood fans. Sadly. And, of course, as we all know, they were, <laughs> it wasn't they to were be. disappointed, yeah. But, uh, all right, when's the next update, Graeme? Well, we're up to 708 pages now. <laughs> I think we're, we're getting to the stage where we've just about got to chop down the Amazon rainforest to do another edition. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. What usually happens is that um, we usually uh, talk to the publisher to, you know, after a reasonable interview, interval, four to five years. Um, the last one before this was 2002. Um, I would imagine, uh, you know, we'll maybe go again in, in four or five years. Whether uh, we've got to sort of split it into two halves or something, I think 700 pages is about as, as far as you can go. Um, uh, maybe start at post-war or something like that as a volume two. I just, I just don't know. <laughs> but but, but it, uh, it keeps going. There's always something good to write about. There is. <laughs> All right, Graeme. Thanks a lot for that. Okay, Barry. Lovely to talk to you. Graeme Atkinson there. That's it for this week. Have a good one.